We'll be looking at Hosea 7 today. You can turn there or it's in your worship guide printed there. Last Sunday, there was some audio that was leaked from an L.A. City Council president where she made some comments that have since led to her resignation. She didn't know she was being recorded, and it's probably something that she would not say at a press conference. These things happen pretty regularly these days. It seems like these hot mic moments, right, where people don't realize they're being recorded, that the mic's on, but it is. People hear it. Most of us aren't public figures. We're not wearing microphones around, wondering if they get shut off, if it's safe to say things. I do that when I sing, but that's more for your benefit than mine. But we have these whispered conversations after the kids go to bed, or we have private conversations behind closed doors. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Those are totally appropriate in many situations. But there are times when I think we do it to hide our sin, to keep it from getting out so that we can continue in it, so that we're not confronted by it. We can be like that city council president where we're trying to hide things, not for the good of others or the glory of God, but for our own gain or glory, to tear others down, to move us forward. What we're going to see this morning is that Israel like us, they forget that the mic's always hot. It's always on. All that we say and do is seen by God. All of life is lived quorum Deo, as they say, before the face of God. So let's look together at what God has to say to his people, Israel, through the prophet Hosea as they have presumed upon his blessings and ignored his presence. Chapter 7. When I would heal Israel, the the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria. For they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil, they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers, for with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him all of this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. 
As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like the birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you do not leave us in darkness, but you give us light, that you reveal yourself to us, that you show us how we are to live, that you call us to repentance. God, help us this morning as we look at this passage, work in us by your spirit, illumine it to our hearts and minds that we may know you, that we may seek you, that we may remember your presence among us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing on in the book of Hosea this morning. It's a book that focuses on the northern kingdom of Israel after there's been a split a couple centuries before. And it's in the last few decades leading up to the destruction of Israel at the hands of Samaria, Assyria, in 722 B.C. It's a period that went from the height of the nation's prosperity, not spiritually, but physically, um, financially, from a materials perspective, to just this complete collapse. So, so far in the book, in the first three chapters, we saw this kind of parable of Hosea, who's told to go marry a woman who's going to be unfaithful to him. And we see that play out. And what's pictured there is God is the loving, faithful husband, and Israel is the unfaithful bride. And now, through the rest of this book, kind of the details are being spelled out a little more in depth. Last week, we heard kind of this call to repentance, to return to the Lord that tears us so that he may heal us. And this hopeful note of him sending the rains. So after that hopeful note last week, these next couple chapters look a little bit more bleak as we see Israel's unfaithfulness. And the response of the wounded husband, God says, what will I do with you? Before, in a few chapters, when we see it juxtaposed against his steadfast love and faithfulness, when he'll cry out, how can I give you up? So we're in this period right now of, what shall I do with you? So these next couple weeks, Dan mentioned this as he was talking that, We're going to be sitting in Israel's sin and unfaithfulness a little bit, with more emphasis on judgment than on mercy. And this might be a message that we need to sit in. Not because God is fickle and we're worried about getting on his bad side, but because despite the saving work of Christ, we often act a lot like Israel. And he cares too much about us to let us continue in our sin, to let us just continue in ways that are harmful to us. 
So these first two verses give kind of a summary statement that's expounded upon throughout the rest of the chapter. If you look at verse 1, when I would heal Israel, this isn't a future hypothetical it's, I like it better as, as I'm coming to heal Israel or while I'm healing Israel. It's what he's doing now. He comes to heal his people. And it's in his coming to heal them that the depth of their sin is revealed. It's like a surgeon who has them on the table and doesn't see the extent of the disease until they're opened up. It's when the Lord comes in healing that we see how deep the disease really goes, how drastic the treatment course needs to be. We can see some of those diagnostics the Lord has been using, seen a few verses prior. In 6.5, he says, I've, I've hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. So God has sent Hosea, he sent these other prophets to point out their sin, to call them to repentance, to show them their sin and call them to covenant faithfulness. But they don't care. They just reject it. God's word and warning have not been enough. They think they're good. It doesn't matter to them that they're saying one thing and doing another, that they're dealing falsely with everyone around them, that you're not safe in your house or out on the streets. Either a thief breaks in or bandits raid. Pick your poison. It says they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. They don't consider that God remembers, that God knows, that God sees. These are God's people. And they act like God doesn't exist. Like he's not real or like he's some talisman and not a person. Sure, they're offering their burnt sacrifices. They're giving offerings. But they don't really know him. They're not really following him. They don't really love him. If we're honest, many of us live much of our lives like God doesn't exist as well. We go about our days, we make decisions just based on what we want, what seems right, how we can get ahead, how we can get what we want. We do what seems advantageous to us without ever giving a thought to the fact that God sees, that he knows, that he cares, or what he's calling us to. Some of you know the Lord. You love him. Yet you're easily distracted. You have this spiritual ADHD and are overstimulated by everything around us, everything going on, so that when we walk out of here or we walk out of praxis or we walk out of community group, you never think again about what you learned about God or what that means for your life, what He's calling you to. We go about it just making decisions as if everything we do is not lived before his face, as if he does not see and know it all. Others of you may not actually know the Lord. You might claim the name Christian and have prayed a prayer to accept Jesus, even been baptized into his church, but other than going through some religious motions, It doesn't really make any claims on your life. 
Or you do all the right things and expect others to as well, but you know nothing of his mercy and grace. Others of you in here don't claim the name of Christ. Maybe you're exploring things. Maybe you got dragged here. You may or likely have some real deep church hurt. That you've experienced much of the hypocrisy that I've just mentioned. I'm glad you're here this morning. I hope that what you'll see is that we wish it weren't so too. Just like you do. But our hope is not in the fact that we'll get it right. But our hope is in the God who comes after us. He comes after us to heal us. He is not content with our hypocrisy either. But he is faithful even when we are not. And he is one who can heal you too. As we continue through the rest of this passage, as we see some of these symptoms of this disease, consider your own life in light of these. Where do you see these reflected in your own heart? We're going to see three symptoms of our disease, of what happens when we forget that we live before the face of God. First, that we follow our sinful hearts. Second, that we forsake our sacred identity. And third, that we falter between spurious hopes. Spurious means false, but I had to get the alliteration in there. Now you'll remember it. First, we follow our sinful hearts. In verses 3 to 7, Hosea uses the image of an oven to describe the people. They are all adulterers, like a heated oven. It's easy to look at this passage and see the repetition of kings and princes and think this is all about the leaders. As goes the king, so go the people, which is true. It's a biblical principle that's expounded elsewhere. And God does hold the leaders of his people to special account. But what we see here is that it's the people who do evil, that all of them are adulterers, that they devour their rulers, that they're actually destroying themselves from the inside out. So this first section is, it's what comes from within us. That's why we can't just separate ourselves from the world and we'll be good. It's actually in our own hearts. As they're heated like an oven, that their quiet passion doesn't go out, even though it's not being stirred. You know, you have to always tend the fire so that it keeps going. It just keeps burning. Then these suppressed passions, it's like anger. It just smolders there overnight till it bursts into flame. In Israel, we see this especially happening with their kings being devoured. So Dan's mentioned the plotting and the intrigue that happened in Israel. So coming out of this period of prosperity, these last 40-ish years, During the downfall of the kingdom, they have six kings in Israel. Four are assassinated. One is conquered by Assyria and is taken away in captivity. And only one just dies a natural death in his bed, that's what they call it. It's just one after another. I think one of them was like six months. Just happening. 
So it's obviously a super stable natural, national environment. But it's from their own hearts. That's where this is starting. It's their own desires. Come this thirst for power, for prestige, for success. No matter the cost, no matter the destruction around them. It's what I want. It's what will benefit me. Hosea uses the image of an oven. James uses the image of childbearing. He says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You want to see why it's not peace among the nation of Israel, why things aren't working? Later, James says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Sounds a little like Hosea. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? But we're bombarded with this message to follow our hearts that who we truly are is on the inside and that we must express it. But apart from the intervening work of God's Spirit to change us, our hearts will only lead us away from God. They will always lead us to sin and death. We are more deeply broken than we could ever imagine. And yet we're told not to seek healing, but to express it, to lean hard into it to normalize it when we need help. For those of us who follow Christ, this isn't an option. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The Christian life doesn't follow our sinful hearts. It follows Jesus the one who gave himself for us, the one who heals us. What embers do you have glowing within you? They're just waiting to burst into flame at the first opportunity. What do you truly desire above all else? What are you biding your time for or working toward, hoping that you can attain? Let it be Christ. Where do we see God in this section of Hosea? The end of verse 7. And none of them calls upon me. They're bringing about their own destruction. And he sees it. Yet he doesn't abandon them. But it's as if he's waiting for them to call upon him. They never do. He's waiting. Let us remember his presence among us and call upon him, not follow our sinful hearts. When we forget that we live before the face of God, we follow our sinful hearts, but we also forsake our sacred identity. 
God has chosen and redeemed Israel. He's set them apart as his people. They're special in the world. They're to be different than the world around them. Yet in verses 8 to 10, Hosea says, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. This picture of dough being mixed together. It can't be separated or distinguished. They're called to be holy, to be set apart, a kingdom of priests who are to represent Yahweh to a watching world. But instead of maintaining this sacred identity, they mix with the people around them. You can't tell one from the other. They've adopted their worship practices and their ethics. He says they're a cake not turned. You're burned on one side and you're raw dough on the other. A waste. Something to be thrown out. They don't even realize the consequences of this. What gave them strength and security to begin with? The Lord. But by mixing with these people who don't know or follow him, their strength and youthful vitality is drained, and they don't even recognize what's happening. Personally, the gray hairs image hits me a little harder than the unturned cake. In my mind, I'm still 22 or 23. I'm one of the young people. I can keep up playing football. It's not until I'm confronted with the reality that it hits me. Sorry, you're not that young anymore. It's not until I'm talking to people younger than me that don't get the references that I make. Or our community group watches the Super Bowl together a couple years ago and they think Shakira is a bigger star than J-Lo, which is not true. Or I go and play flag football and I'm just gassed two minutes in and then everything hurts and it's five days of recovery instead of just bouncing back. That's why I don't play anymore, guys, sorry. When we forsake our sacred identity and become like the world around us, which thinks nothing of God and his glory, we lose our strength and vitality. It disappears because those come from the very God we're setting aside. We're not who we think we are anymore. We view ourselves as special when we look no different. If someone were to look at your life, would they know that you follow Jesus? Or are you indistinguishable from everyone else around you? Do you have the same values, goals, and motives? Or are you after something different? And if your life does look different, does it look like religious fanaticism or does it look more like Jesus? Where you might be weird, I'm weird, but your mark, your life is marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, and not by anger, self-righteousness, judgmentalism. If we profess Christ, but there's no change in our lives, If we still look like everyone around us, then we need to ask whether we actually believe in him or not. 
whether we actually know him or not. Because if we don't love him, then we don't understand. If we don't care whether we're pleasing him, then we don't get it. And where is God as his people are becoming unrecognizable? We see him again at the end of verse 10, waiting for them to return to him, to seek after him. He still hasn't left. For centuries this is going on. He still hasn't left. When we forget that we live before the face of God, we follow our sinful hearts. We forsake our sacred identity. And finally, we we falter between spurious hopes. Hosea now compares Israel to a dove and not in a good way. They're silly and without sense. They're bird brains. That's what he's calling them there. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. They think these external nations are what they really need to worry about. And they've gone back and forth between them, paying tribute to Assyria so that they don't just conquer them and wipe them out. Then Egypt gets enough power that they think they can side with them against Assyria. And so they do that. It's back and forth. Just trying to work the situation, trying to make it happen themselves. But we'll flip on a dime. And you think about Egypt really bird brain that they're putting their hope in the nation who enslaved them, who oppressed them. They're going to them saying, you'll deliver me. Instead of the one who saved them from Egypt, instead of turning to God, the one who delivered them from slavery, who redeemed them, who gave them the land that they're now inhabiting, the land that they are afraid to lose. Silly and without sense. In doing so, they show that they have forgotten that their God alone is their only hope, the only one who can protect them. And so while they're worried about these other nations, God actually says he's the one who's spreading the net for them. He's going to use the Assyrians, but it's Yahweh who is disciplining them. They think they're free. They're like birds flying in the heavens. They're about to be ensnared, and that freedom is an illusion. What do you fear? For Israel, it's the threat of being overtaken by the Assyrians, by losing what they have. For many of us, it seems to be the changes happening in our culture, or the climate, or the threat of conflict, or the economy. So where do we turn for hope? To politicians or political parties. Or we're cynical. Just give up altogether and resign ourselves to empty and fruitless entertainment and distractions. Or to crippling anxiety. Constant worry but no solutions and no hope. 
But even these are false hopes that are predicated on false fears. When we give in to these fears and think we can protect ourselves or manipulate the system and solve these problems, we're acting like bird brains. We're silly and without sense. We're going after our enslavers, hoping they'll free us. But they never will. What do we have to fear but the Lord? Do you think these issues, as real as they are, they're real issues, are beyond the power and the strength of the one who speaks and creation comes into existence from nothing? The one who now is upholding the world by his power? I don't think so. Put your hope in him, our loving father who knows what you need and gives it to you. So where is God in this? He's actually the one bringing the judgment for their sins. That's the treatment they need for their disease. To be healed, this has to actually be stripped away. He has to tear us so that he can heal us. But look what he says at the end of verse 13. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Still, despite all of this, he is willing to redeem. When we forget that we live before the face of God, we follow our sinful hearts. We forsake our sacred identity. And we falter between spurious hopes. What then are we to do? To do what they didn't. To call upon him, to return to him and seek him, to proclaim the truth about him. But to do it truly, with our whole hearts, unlike Israel. Look at what they do. Verse 14. It says, false worship, or at least not what he's called them to. They look Religious, they wail upon their beds. They gash themselves for grain and wine. The appearance is this intense fervor. But they're coming to him. They're praying to him like they do the Baals. Not from their hearts. And what they want is grain and wine. They want God's blessings instead of God himself. They're not crying to him from the heart. They think they can manipulate him into getting what they want. They act like they're repenting. It says they are returning. But not upward. They're not returning to God. They are a treacherous bow. They look like they're aimed at one thing when they are not. It is not as it appears. If you come to God only for what he can give you, to get what you want from him and not for him, then you're not coming to him with your whole heart. If you're treating him like a vending machine God, that if you clean up this behavior, if you do these right things or stop doing those, if you go to church or the Bible study, 
So you can push B3 and God will have to give you this trinket of financial prosperity or a happy family or self-actualization. Then you're returning but not to him. You're still following your sinful heart. That's what you want. You're still forsaking who he calls you to be, who he makes you in Christ. And you're putting your hope in the wrong thing. But if you want true peace and security that can withstand the changes in our culture and in our families and whatever comes our way, return to him. We were made for him. As Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. What you need is him, not what he can give you. If you will seek him and cry out to him according to his word, you will find him. That's what he tells us. And he will satisfy the deepest longings and desires of your heart. He will give you everything that you need. It probably won't be everything you think you want right now. But he will give you everything that you need that is actually for your good. Will we follow in Israel's footsteps? As we've looked at the symptoms of their disease and seen them in ourselves, will we feign repentance and continue to live contrary to him? Maybe going through the external rites of religion Or will we truly return to him and cry out to him from our hearts? If so, he will redeem you. 